Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we appreciate um, that regardless of how our hearts enter, just as we saw last week with the parable of the sower, that uh, there is one tool, one power, one source that can change and help, heal, calm, comfort, convict. And that is the word of God. And so as we submit ourselves and our experiences to you, we ask for you to be gracious according to your will, to help us according to your great plan for salvation, and to sanctify us according to our desires for joy. We pray this in your name. Amen. What does it mean to be successful? If you had to answer that, how would you answer it? What does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be female? What does it mean to be Christian? Those same questions, depending upon who you ask, where you ask, and in what era of history you ask, each of those nouns will be described differently. For example, to ask a cancer patient what health is, is to probably get a different answer than to ask a bodybuilder as to what health is. To ask someone in Papua New Guinea what success is, is going to yield a different answer than to ask a freshman at the University of Montana what success is. But despite the seeming changes and endless relativity, one of those questions throughout the ages has an answer which can be given with a sort of definite understanding. And that question is, what does it mean to be a Christian? You see, the irony to all of the definitions we have to give in life is not that we don't have a definition. We can offer definitions endlessly. Every web page, every social media account, every newspaper, every movie is trying to provide us with answers to important questions, defining who we are, what the world is, and what our purposes ought to be in life. So the question is not, do you have an answer to important questions? It's, is your answer the right answer? Does your answer hold up over time? And in a world where it seems meaning and clarity are more obstructed than it has ever been, in the book of Luke, 2,000 years ago, here for us today, Jesus continues to do what Jesus has always sought to do. And that is speaking truth into a confused world and peace into our anxious and diverse hearts. As we continue in the book of Luke today, what Bridget just read for us in Luke chapter 8 is we see Jesus beginning to define for us with certainty what it means to be a Christian. That is to say, what we'll see, what are the most natural qualities of those who follow Jesus? And we're going to see this in two ways, and you can see this in your text. We're going to see in verses eight, or 16 through 18, Jesus is going to answer this question in the form of a parable. And then in verses 19 through 21, he's going to answer that question in terms of a real interaction he has with his family. And the big picture today is this. What does it mean to be a Christian? How ought we to answer that? Well, this is the headline. Followers of Jesus shine their light and know their rights. That is to say, those who naturally identify as Christians are those who, or supernaturally identify as Christians, are those who most naturally shine Jesus brightly and relate to Jesus rightly. 
And our text today picks up, you'll notice there's really no division between what we read last week in the parable of the sower and what Jesus begins with today. And that is another parable, that of light and lamps. And the context of the parable is really important for us today because just as last week we encountered Jesus prefacing his parable saying, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Today, his exhortation is similar. He says, take care then how you hear. Which is, again, really helpful for us today because so many times we wander into church and we wonder if this guy who knows little or much of my life can relate to me or if God's word has anything to say to you. But here, this is relevant to anyone who is hearing right now. Anyone who is about to hear the word of God, most clearly the gospel of God, which is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. To have just heard what you have just heard is to find yourself in need of this text. Last week, Jesus' parable described those who received this word as soil that received the seed of God. This week, those who receive this word are described as lamps that are lit alight. The word of God lights Christians aflame when they hear the word of God. And this is our first point this morning, and that is that Christians naturally shine their light. In John 8, 12, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. And to anyone who comes to him, he will also give the light of life. And here we see anyone who follows Jesus in Luke 6 or 8, according to Jesus, is lit aflame. They are illuminated. And in this metaphor, all we have to be, the greatest qualification for being a Christian is to be a dead, dry wick. That's it. We don't have to come to Jesus full of ourselves, leaking with potential. We come to Jesus dead, but wet with the grace of the gospel. And Jesus does all the rest. And that's what Christians are called here as burning lamps. It's a theme Jesus will actually circle around later too with a similar parable in the book of Luke. And so when we look at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that the apostle John describes the churches of that day as burning lamps in the midst of a dark world. And Jesus' remarkably simple parable highlights the purpose for which lamps are lit and therefore the purpose for which God speaks his word and converts souls. And the point here is obvious. The most boring sermon you will ever hear is someone who comes and tries to explain to you this parable for 45 minutes. Because it's self-evident, isn't it? It's super easy. Who, in terms of lighting a lamp in their house, takes that lamp, goes into a closet and closes the door and leaves it lit? Who in Jesus' day goes through all of the, the, the work, like we flip on a light switch. And if you ever sat on a couch, you know how inconvenient that is. And in Jesus' day, it's not just a light switch. It's you have to go and get the wick and you have to make sure there's oil in the lamp and you have to trim the wick and then you have to get the means of lighting that. And who, after doing all of that groundwork, then puts a pot over that lamp? The answer is self-evident. It's simple. You're not supposed to do that. We don't need PhDs to understand the point, which means the point should be obvious for us as it relates to our walk with Jesus. If you have been converted from death to life, if you have been converted from light to darkness, then why would you assume that it is not God's design, not God's intent, and not God's purpose for you to exhibit that light visibly. That that is the most natural follow-up to the work of hearing and responding to the gospel. 
One of my favorite parts about the Olympics is a part that we as viewers get to see very little of, and it's the Olympic torch relay. And a few months before any Olympic event starts, uh, the Olympic flame is lit in Olympia, Greece, and an athlete goes and they take their torch, and from that Olympic flame, they light their torch, and that begins a relay of bearing that torch across the globe via thousands of athletes And it culminates when the final athlete runs into center stadium and with that torch being lit by the Olympic flame, begins the Olympics by lighting that host nation's torch. When we sinners are saved by grace, we are torches lit aflame by the Olympic flame of Jesus for the direct purpose of running through this globe as visible representations of Christ. This is not the unnatural forced life of the Christian. Any more than that torch being lit is being unnatural or forced. It is the natural thing for which it is purposed. That's what it does naturally. You don't have to tell flame to be a flame. It simply is. And we know that because there's a so that statement in this text, isn't there? Did you guys see that? That so that statement proves that we have been saved on purpose, for a purpose, and we therefore bear the light of Christ for a purpose. And there are actually two purposes I think we have as being bearers of light in this text. And the first is that we shine light for the sake of others. Look again at verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Why are we lit aflame by the glory of the gospel? so that others might see. Why are we to be distinct, different from the dark world to which we once belonged? Because the world needs and is better off with what we have. Because the world is dark, light always shines the way home. Because sin leaves us cold and lifeless, there is nothing like the fire of grace to rouse stone hearts to life through the beauty of Jesus. All of us know All of us have felt the chilling effects of hypocrisy, haven't we? We hate it. Our world hates that. But here we see the opposite of that. We see the warming, encouraging, fantastic effect of seeing the glory of Jesus in the lives of his disciples, shining gospel light on and for others. This week I was talking to some members who have been participating in refugee care around Missoula. And a news station showed up and uh, kind of impromptu asked one of our members why they were doing what they're doing. And not having time to rehearse her remarks, she simply said, we love people, we love refugees, because we love Jesus. It is a visible representation of what Jesus has done and what Jesus did for us. And see, the truth is, I have never met a Christian who feels, who does not feel a desire to be more evangelistic. Is there anyone in this room who says, I evangelize the most perfect amount I've ever wanted to evangelize? (laughs) No one could do it more, and to do it more would simply be outrageous. There's always a desire to share the gospel more. And here we see that evangelism doesn't start when you open your mouth. It starts the moment Jesus Christ converts you from darkness to light. It begins right there. You are already distinct, already visible. I went to Ace Hardware the other day to replace a light. You know, we used to tell the joke of like, how many people does it take to replace a light bulb? And we laugh like, oh, you could do it. Have you ever tried to replace a light bulb lately? 
to match the color and the style and the wattage and like, I don't know, the gravitational force that our lights now have. You walk in and it's like, I need a light. And they're like, well, what's your color temperature? What do you want? Do you want it to be, you know, incandescent like you're a Stone Age creature? Do you want it to be LED? Do you want to control it with your remote? And we could look at the world, and when it comes to trying to match our hearts to something, we could find that we are always out of sorts because the options are endless. But here's the beauty of what Jesus does when he converts you. He does not make you an independent light. Instead, your light is derivative of him. He sets the course for your wattage and for your color temperature and for your style because it is not you, it is Christ in you. He makes you a light by which he also makes you alive. It is natural to know who we are supposed to be because we know who has saved us. We are simply to look like Jesus, more and more, day by day. That means our lives are different. Our words are different. Our hobbies are different. Our Netflix cues are different. Our finances are different. The way we respond to bad bosses is different. The way we speak to our children is different. Our relationships towards the opposite sex is different. Why? Because we are different. We once had no light, and Jesus changed that. We too once lived in darkness, and now we not only know the illuminating effect of light, but we actually know the joy of it. And this is super important when we read this text because our lives should not only show the difference Jesus makes, you once did this and now you do that, that's what it means to be converted, but our lives actually show the joy of following Jesus. It shows that it's better, that we have found something that's not only true, but something that is good. We have under our stairs in the basement a storage closet. We have very little storage at our house, which means this storage closet is the scariest place in the world. There's zero structure, there's zero order. And when we walk downstairs and we see the light on and the door open, we turn it off and we close the door. (laughs) Because no one wants to see the disordered chaos of a hoarding closet. And here, what we see is the contrast of something that people want to see. Our living room, when people come over, we don't close the door and turn off the lights. We turn it on. Why? Because there's something worth seeing there. It's a place where we want people to desire to be. We shine like Jesus, not only because we ourselves have been brought from darkness into light, but we seek to obey Jesus, to love Jesus, and to be more and more like Jesus publicly because we want others to see that this is the greatest life. This is the greatest joy. This is where you want to spend your time. This is a taste of the kingdom which will satisfy ultimately. My wife and I love driving around houses that we can never afford, which is any house in Missoula now. But we love driving around at night because we're creepers. And the beauty of driving at night is that in contrast to the darkness, they turn on all their lights. This sounds really creepy, but you can see in their windows a lot easier at night. And now that you know, be mindful of church discipline. No, (laughs) 
We do this because we want to see that which is attractive. We want to be like, that is beautiful. That is stunning. That is gorgeous. If your light for Christ were dimmed, would there be any noticeable lack of joy in your life to those around you? Would they notice a lack of comfort, a lack of peace, a lack of drive, a lack of satisfaction? Or when people drive by your house, in the contrast of this dark world, do what they see through the windows of the gospel, is it a life satisfied? A life of something that others are drawn to, a life of gospel joy. A.W. Tozer, the Chicago pastor, once said this, he said, the church will come out of her doldrums when we find out that salvation is not a light bulb only, that it is not an insurance policy against hell only, but that it is a gateway into God and that God is all we would have and can desire. We shine light to this world. We display our slogan here at Sovereign Hope, gospel change for all of life because the world needs this light not only for salvation, but for satisfaction. We do it so others might see the privilege of being saved by a Jesus as good as this. But we also do it because we need it. This is Jesus' second reason we shine our light. We shine light for the sake of ourselves. Look at verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. I'm going to read verse 18 here too. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. And so what's interesting about this parable, we've just seen the beauty of the light. It's so others might see. It's better to be in the light than to be in darkness. And now Jesus assumes that some people will do what? Hide it. Keep it secret. Why is that? And I begin to think in my life, what are some reasons why I would want to do that? We love the light, right? There's the, into marvel, we are saved. We are part of his marvelous light. Jesus is the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. But why is it that sometimes we suppress that light? I can think of two primary reasons. First, for some of us, we wish to keep hidden what could to our world be deemed as offensive, strange, or odd. How many of you have had that moment in life where you're like, if my neighbor found out I was a Christian, would they come over to our barbecue? If I invite them to our community group, would they immediately say, aha, now I know who not to do anything with socially. If your classmates discovered that you go to church on Sunday, would you worry that they wouldn't invite you to hang out with them on the weekends like they once did? If your boss discovered your faithfulness to Jesus, would he change his demeanor towards you or maybe label you as opposite the goals and priorities of your corporate job? This is not only a real concern, it's actually a reasonably fearful concern because Jesus tells us that when light comes into the world, darkness hates it. No one likes, like when you turn on the light in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror after you've woken up, no one's like, dang, that looks good. It's like this, it still look like that. Light reveals and people don't like revelation. And so there's a way in which some of us might want to hide that. But for others, it might be that we're less worried about non-Christians who would judge us, but perhaps we're worried about Christians who would judge us. 
Maybe there's those who, for whatever reason, perhaps through sin, perhaps through suffering or through doubt, we shine less brightly than we would hope. And so in fear of being seen seen as dim, as struggling in need of encouragement, we prefer to hide and smolder in secret so that no one can see how faint our light is. But here Jesus calls us to bear light all the more for the sake of our own soul and the sake of our own sanity. Why? Because one day everything will be exposed. One day whatever control you feel like you have to hide or control the light will be stripped away. Those who fear the response of the world know that one day God will expose everything. Your hearts will be exposed. The deepest desires you want no one else to see will be portrayed before God. And not only yours, the heart of the whole world will one day stand before the Lord and you will give account. Isn't that interesting? When we think of judgment, we sometimes just think of God having this big DVR and he goes into a room like a judge and closes the door and watches it and comes back out. But what's more intimate and what the Bible says is that you will give account for everything you have done in the flesh, whether good or bad. Not only will God see it all, but you will have to tell it all. The God of the world will judge wickedness. And this should incite in us a sense of sobriety. But for believers, it imparts also a sense of peace. Because when we fear the response of the world to the light we have in Jesus Christ, we know that light will be vindicated. We know that one day a wicked rebellion against the gospel will be seen as what it truly is, which is not an enlightenment according to the truest power, but it's actually a rejection of enlightenment and the truest power. I was looking this week at old advertisements. Have you ever done that? I saw a Butterfinger ad, and on the side of the Butterfinger wrapper it said, sweetened with dextrose. Mm Mm-mm. I looked at some old cigarette ads. They boasted uh, that you should smoke this one. This was their real slogan. For the sake of your throat. They promoted not as only being doctor approved, but dentist approved. And they made bold claims of the effect it had on your stress and on your weight. You see, history has shown that those ideas are laughable. And when God judges the earth, the practices, desires, and priorities of our world, the ones that we often fear in the flesh, will be seen as foolish through the lens of glory. That we need not fear anything but the God who will one day call all to account. To find ourselves at odds with darkness in an uncomfortable world is to find at the same time the affirmation of hope we have of knowing we belong to the light. We do not fear, for Christ's light will be vindicated. But secondly, as it relates to hiding our light before others, there's both a caution and a confidence in this text. The caution is, what you do in the body matters. Be aware, for God will judge. We cannot fall prey to the line that those in the church can simply fake it till we make it. As long as the pastor who looks in my windows at night doesn't know how bad my life is, we'll be good. God knows, and you will tell. But the confidence is this. That is, those who have been lit aflame by Jesus, flame is your future. 
For those who have been lit aflame by Jesus, flame is your future. Why? Because it depends not on you, but on God who raises the dead. Because it is the power of God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because it is the Lord who will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We will grow. We will shine. We will become more like Jesus. What is unnatural to our flesh is made natural according to the Spirit. Look at Paul's words in Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried therefore with him in baptism, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, resurrections are not natural. It was not natural for Jesus to rise out of the, out of the grave. But when the power of God enlivened Jesus, what was natural was for him to live. And when we are saved by that same power, the glory of God, which raises Jesus from the dead, raises each and every one of his converts from the dead. And to do that, it is the most natural thing for you to walk in newness of life. And when we think about following Jesus and showing fruits of holiness, bear in mind these parables, the simplicity of it. No one looks at a seed that's beginning to grow and thinks, oh, that poor seed, life must be so hard. No one looks at these LED lights burning at 2,000 color temperature and they say, is that right, Daniel? Nope. All right. Cool. Uh, I didn't know colors had temperatures. No one looks at that and says like, oh, it's probably getting so exhausted. I bet it woke up this morning. It's just like, no one, no one flipped that switch. It's natural. It's what they're made to do. It would be odd if it didn't give out light. It is a failure for a seed to not produce fruit. It is the joy of a Christian by the power of God to naturally look more like Jesus as we love Jesus more and more. This is a challenge, but it's also a comfort. To come to faith in Jesus is to have a seed that grows. Daniel, in his prophetic vision, he sees into the end, sees into glory, and look at how he describes God's saints in eternity. Daniel 12, 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen. There was a nation until never, such as never been seen. There was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who, whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. What is the future of God's saints? Shining like stars of righteousness looking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, worshiping Jesus seems hard in the moment, but it is the most natural thing for a Christian to do. This is the joy and comfort. This is why the parable of the sower ends with the command we saw last week to hold fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. We have hope that we will look like Jesus. We might be frustrated and fearful of light that flickers, but Jesus calls us not to run and hide, but instead to get help to see that God fans smoldering wicks into flames by his grace. And this is where Jesus gives us his final challenge in Luke 18 in our text, where he says this, take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, 
more will be given. And from the one who has not even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So there's a little bit of a play on words here that we can't pick up in English, but the verb translated as take care, blepo, is the same word used above when he talks about those who come and may see the light. It's just the verb to see. And so Jesus is quite literally saying, see carefully how you hear. With Jesus, our eyes and our ears are always connected. In other words, he's saying, look at the life you see in light of the hope you hear. And does it line up? Can you see the hope you've heard? Because if you do, if you look at your life and you see the fruits of the gospel laying around, know this, God will add more. Are you someone who in trying to pursue Jesus has been trying faithfully and it seems like growth, though slow, is painful? Not as fast as you want. Take heart. God will add more. He will not leave you alone. His promise to sanctify the church is as concrete as the air we breathe. Death, taxes, and Christlikeness is the future of the church. Jesus will do what he's always promised to do. So take heart and shine your light. But for those who hear this message and look at their life and see no light, whatever comfort they think they have, Jesus says it will one day be taken away from them. It is nothing at all. I once heard the story of a man who, exploring the savannah on a moonlit night, found a patch of earth that was soft and warm, and he laid in it for the night. And as the morning sun came, we all know where this ends, he woke up and found himself laying on a dunghill. You might be one who thinks you could find joy in this world apart from the light of the gospel. But one day the light will come on. You may think you have ground for joy now, but when the light comes on in full, even what you think you had will be nothing at all. The greatest comfort we thought we had according to the flesh is nothing but dung hills in light of God's glory. And this paradigm is illustrated briefly and powerfully in Luke's concluding account of Jesus and his family. And read this with me now, verses 19 through 21. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So here we have our final point this morning. Not only do Christians naturally shine the light of Jesus, but Christians naturally know their rights. And here we have a story about what rights we have before Jesus. Here's a living parable of what we just saw. No one would have heard Jesus more than his family. For over two decades, they've heard him, they've seen him, they've lived with him. And yet, what we see is by the end of this story, they still miss it. They have not taken care of what they've heard. Even what they thought they had, blood rights to Jesus, are pulled out from under them at the end. They're seen as lacking what they think they once had. And if you remember, if you look back in your Bible at Luke chapter 8, verse 4, this whole saga of Jesus' teaching began with crowds, great crowds, coming from town to town to see Jesus. And now Jesus' family has also come. We don't know why. Perhaps it's because they miss him and they just want to say hi. Or more likely, it's that they see Jesus is facing opposition. He's looking more and more like a fool, according to worldly standards. 
and the air temperature is getting hotter and hotter. And in fear for their brother and fear for their son, they're like, let's take a chill pill, Jesus. Let's have a chit chat. Come outside. Come on. Let's talk out here. But for whatever reason, this is what we do know. That one, it was on account of the crowds that they couldn't physically get to Jesus. The Greek stresses kind of this physical uh, idea. They couldn't meet with Jesus. They couldn't come at Jesus. There's a physical separation between them. But there are three other things. Let's do some Bible study here. Three other things we could look at when we see this text. And the first is that Jesus is alerted to his family being there, not by his family, but by someone else. We're not told that the family sent a message to Jesus. The family didn't cry out to Jesus. The family simply showed up. And it was another messenger who went and informed Jesus of what was happening just outside where he was speaking. Second, what the secondhand messenger tells us is that the family desired to see Jesus. This in Greek is an active present participle. In other words, they are actively, they are continually desiring to see Jesus. Their desire has not been fulfilled. They are not content where they're at. They want to see Jesus. But in contrast to that, we also see what's important. Despite their desire to see Jesus, what are they doing? Standing. And this is an active perfect verb, which means is an action that has been completed and bears continuing influence. In other words, they've done their part. It's Jesus's move. They have stood. They desire, but they're not going any further. So what do we see here? We see even though his family desired to see him, they weren't willing to call out. They were not willing to do anything more than to stay standing on the outside and to wait for Jesus to come. And perhaps this was reasonable to them. They are Jesus' family. Out of all the crowds that were there, these are the ones who had a natural right to see Jesus. And he should have acknowledged the weight of that relationship and come out to see them. And what's important is that by the end of Luke's gospel, and specifically by the end of Acts, we see that Jesus' mother and brothers are believers. They're pillars in the early church. But what Luke has shown us so far in every interaction with Jesus' blood family is that his blood family is wrestling with how to relate to Jesus. Remember, it was back when Jesus was in the temple where Mary, in her anxiety, wasn't confronted by Jesus saying, what's up, mom? You found me. He's like saying, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? I'd be in the temple. And this isn't because Jesus devalues the family. We'll actually talk more about that in Luke chapter 14. But instead, what Jesus is attempting to do is to show how the gospel redefines the family and how that relationship with Jesus is one of hearing and doing. Jesus' family desires him. They assume they have a natural right to him, but they do nothing more to get to him. And here we see the danger and difficulty of simultaneously desiring to see Jesus while at the same time wanting to relate to him merely according to the flesh. What do I mean when I say that? Well, Jesus' family knew Jesus as primarily their son and their brother by the flesh, by simply who they were. They felt they had an innate right to see him. And we can often make that same, that same mistake. We desire Jesus, we desire to be with Jesus, we desire to have an encounter with Jesus, but we want to relate to him based off something according to us, based off something innate. Perhaps we were raised in a Christian family. Perhaps we want to be a moral person and we know Jesus can help. 
Perhaps we've avoided specific token sins in the past and we feel on account of these things or what we've given to the church or the amount of mission trips we've been on, we can summon Jesus to us. But none of us based on our flesh, on our own natural abilities, have any right to Jesus. Romans 3.23 says there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now we see why Jesus says, take care how you hear. The path to Jesus is open. That's what's been being made indubitably clear as we've been working through Luke. Anyone can come to Jesus, but to whom is it open? Not those who come by blood, but those who come by faith. For those who desire to come to Jesus based off who you are, and what natural right you have in the flesh, here you see how far you get to the outside. But where has faith gotten the crowds so far? What's interesting in the book of Luke is the crowds have never been a deterrent to anyone until this point. It was the faith of a paralytic and his friends when they couldn't reach Jesus. They broke through somebody's roof. It is the centurion's faith in Jesus who called Jesus to his home, not because he was worthy, but instead he says, I am unworthy for you to even come into my house. And Jesus marveled at his faith. In a couple weeks, we'll notice a woman who, in the midst of a crowd who ignores her, has the boldness to reach out and touch Jesus despite her lowly posture. You see, To be part of Jesus's family is to hear and do according to faith. Seeing Jesus as a brother or as a son or as a friend will only get you so far despite your desire. But to hear and do the word of God is to see Jesus as primarily your savior and to come all the way on the inside. To be part of Jesus' family is to hear and do the word of God. And the word of God calls you first and foremost to repent and to come to him, not based off the strength of your flesh, but according to the merit of your faith. But for those who come, for those who humble themselves, consider what Jesus says of you in John chapter one. John chapter one, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To come to Jesus with no natural right is to be made a rightful family member of God. Unless we see Jesus as primarily our savior, we will always struggle to see him as anything else. I want to say that again. Unless we see Jesus as primarily our savior, we will always struggle to see him as anything else. We will always be desiring from the outside, always discontent. But once we see Jesus as primarily our savior, it's hard to not see him as everything else. 
When we see Jesus as the one who he is, the one who we approach not based off who we are, but based off of faith in who he is, he becomes everything to us. Yes, he is our savior. Yes, he is the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. Yes, he is the only one who perfectly and eternally obeyed God, but he is also my brother. He is also my friend. He is also my husband. He is also my comforter. He is also my king. To see Jesus as Savior is to be welcomed into the wealth of his whole family. So how do you relate to Jesus? On what grounds do you approach him? Because you have the right, having heard the message of the gospel, to hear the gospel and do it. That is our privilege to create a life of obedience in the midst of it. I love the words that Luke uses here. When it's hearing and doing, the doing in the book of Luke is this artistic word. Create something with it. Think outside the box. Dream with it. See what the gospel has done. Look at the room now illumined by the light of grace and make something beautiful. This is the right. This is the privilege. This is the definition of what it looks like to be Jesus's true family. And while Jesus' family will understand this paradigm of hearing and doing later, it has been afforded to you to hear it and understand it today. That the way of being a Christian is a way of hearing what Jesus has done and doing something with it. Not in a forced, unnatural way, but in a way that sees this is the most natural action of anyone who has received the gospel. So I just want to give three quick points of application here in closing. First, hearing and doing the word of God is the pathway to evangelism. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but if you want to be light to the world, trust Jesus with the whole of your life, not just the words of your life. Words are necessary for evangelism to happen. The gospel is a message that must be believed and received. But do not miss the weight Jesus places on our lives to either undercut your words or to enhance your words. And so when you look at your life, does your life ring with the beautiful truth of Psalm 119 verses 35 and 37? Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Does your life evangelistically show the joy of giving ourselves over to Jesus without any restraint? When people see what you long for, do they see you longing for Jesus? Second, hearing and doing the word of God is the nature of God's new family, the church. That's what we see here. Jesus redefines the family. The family of God is the family that hears and does together. We talk often of discipleship and community here at the church, and you might wonder what that looks like. Maybe you're new here. Maybe you've never feel like you've gotten involved here. But here, Jesus tells you exactly where to start this process. Jesus makes the work of the family of God easy. Hear the word of God together and do the word of God together. That's it. This is the goal of our community groups. This is the thrust of all of our discipleship. It provides more opportunities for us to together hear God's word and for us together do something with God's word, which means right now you can go ask somebody to help you with that. Go to someone and say, help me hear and help me do. 
Or better yet, go and offer that. I had a, a kidless car ride with my wife the other day. We were coming back from vacation, and I asked her two questions. I said, how can I love you more, and how can I help you follow Jesus? That's not because I had a stroke of brilliance. I was terrified asking those questions. <laughs> but what would it look like for you to ask the person next to you, how can I love you better as a brother and sister in Christ? And how can I help you follow Jesus? How can I help you hear the word of God and do the word of God? It's not unnatural. It's the most natural way we relate to one another in the family of God. And lastly, for those who don't feel the light, for those who don't feel like Jesus' family, for those who feel like joy is great in idea but lacking in experience, consider the simple hope that hearing and doing the word of God is an experience of intimacy with Jesus. How do you know your beloved family member of Jesus? You hear his word and you do it. We might think that to cultivate an emotional affection towards Jesus, we have to, you know, listen to Christian music, spend time in prayer, read our Bible until our eyes fall out. But when we want to feel near to Jesus, take Jesus at his word. Hear his word and do it. All of those other things, reading your Bible matters, prayer matters, worship matters. They matter though, not because they are in themselves something beautiful. They matter because they are obedience to Jesus. They matter because Jesus said, obey me and you will experience my joy. And we have this weird dysfunctional relationship with obedience because we naturally just think legalistically, which says, I obey, therefore I'm loved. That's legalism. The gospel says, I am loved, therefore I obey, which means the more you obey, the more you experience God's love for you. The more you are reminded that you are not earning a standing before God, but that you already stand before God. There is nothing more lifeless than obedience apart from grace, but there is nothing more laden in love than obeying this Jesus. By realizing his grace has freed you to be loved by him and to be his family by grace through faith. You want to know what loving Jesus looks like? Take Jesus at his word in John chapter 14 where he says this. John chapter 14 verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does it mean to be Christian? It's to follow the natural course of your conversion. Hearing and doing for your joy, for the salvation of the lost, and for the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are everything that we are not. Lord, I think of Paul quoting Deuteronomy giving the weight of what it means to follow the word of God, that this word is not far from us, but that also that we are able to do it because you are the God who makes sure of that. That we can hear because Christ has come to make it clear. That we can believe because the cross has come to shatter hearts of unbelief. And we can do because the gospel has come through the power of the Holy Spirit to bind our hearts to the joy of showing our light and relating to Jesus as our Savior.